Let me start with uh, kind of a series of questions to get uh, us started thinking about this. What if you were the only Christian you knew? What if the place you lived in knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about churches, nothing about the Bible, nothing about Christianity? What if, and this isn't hard to believe, what if uh, all of that was true and therefore the culture you lived in, all of its customs conflicted with your faith in really every aspect of life, the way you do family conflicted with what the culture around you said, the way you go to your workplace and uh, the way that you practice religion and the way that children are educated and the way the entertainment is presented and government and the law and all of it, all of it was against what you believed. Would you, if that were your situation, would you be resolved to live for Christ even if you were the only one who was. That is the context of the book of Daniel. But it's not so far off what we face today in our own society, one that is largely philosophically hostile to what we believe. And so this is the challenge we face as we come to the word of God. That we have in front of us, a society that is, in essence, if I could say it this way, a society that is pseudo-pagan, that is Babylonian-esque, and we feel that as we seek to live out our life for Jesus Christ. But how can we live in light of that as the followers of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer comes to us in a single word that actually forms the title for this series, but it's found right in the middle of chapter 1 in, in verse 8, in fact, where, where uh, the, the narrator tells us, but Daniel resolved. Daniel made a determination in his heart that no matter what was going on around him, he was going to live for Jesus Christ. To be resolved means, and I compiled a bunch of definitions to kind of help us see what it's going to take. To be resolved means to be determined. It is to have a definite, conclusive, and earnest desire. It is to settle it, to solve it, to clear away doubts, and to dispel fears. To be resolved is to make up your mind about a matter and act accordingly. It is to be firm in your intent and purpose. It is to move decisively in a certain direction. It is that I am resolved to think it. I am resolved to believe it. I am resolved to say it. I am resolved to do it. I am resolved to live it. And do you have that resolve? Is that how you would describe your faith in light of the context we live in? Would you live for Christ no matter what? We're in this 12-message uh, series, and we're going to track with Daniel and some of his friends to see uh, what it actually takes to be resolved, to live a life like that when everything is stacked against you. And Daniel 1, in fact, serves as a, an introduction to the book. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. We're going to be introduced to the characters. We're going to see a couple of themes emerge in chapter 1 that are going to carry us throughout the entire book. And if you're taking notes right now, the first theme uh, that, that runs throughout the entire book is God's 
God is sovereign over all of history. God is sovereign over all of history. He's in control. And we'll see that this morning. We'll see it throughout the book. And then secondly, that's kind of the vertical aspect of it, but then the horizontal aspect, the responsibility that's mine, this secondary theme, the believer's necessary determination to live by faith no matter how hostile the culture is around me. God's sovereignty and my resolve. That's where we're going today in this message and throughout this entire series. And so let me uh, pray for us right now and then we'll get after it in, in Daniel chapter one. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's uh, definitely exciting to me to be at the starting line of another ministry year, the starting line of a new series. And God, I know from your word that you love to do a new thing. And in fact, the ongoing work in our lives is a work of renewing us and making us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, and less and less like our sinful natures. And so God, as we open your word uh, right now again, and as we do it week by week throughout this series, Father, I, I pray that we would be eager to hear, to understand, to, to be um, convicted by and to do the word of God by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that your word would do what it is designed to do, because we know that it's living and it's active. We know it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe that it divides soul and spirit. Father, we know that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And I pray that your word would do exactly that right now. Discern our thoughts, discern our intentions, and speak to us. We need this, Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Are you with me this morning? All right. So let's go after this. Here's, um, here's what we're looking at in chapter one. I must be resolved to live for Christ. I must be resolved to live for Christ. And we'll see this first. In the face of all trouble. Resolve to live for Christ in the face of all trouble. Now let me read. We haven't read any of this yet, but we'll read it in uh, four sections here as we work through the text. Let's start with the first seven verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. I must be resolved to live for Christ in the face of all trouble. You get a sense just reading that. It's a bit matter of fact. In fact, the second verse, which kind of sums up the historical note about what was going on here, you see that it just says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. 
It is kind of a matter-of-fact statement, and behind that, there's really so much to it, but we could be forgiven for just kind of reading that and having kind of a laissez-faire attitude about it and not really seeing it as much more than a passing comment about this event in history, not realizing how very destructive and disruptive and devastating this was to the people who were invaded by Nebuchadnezzar. You start to mine down a little bit more on it, and you get a sense of just how much trouble came upon the people. First of all, verse 1, this was an invasion, and there was a siege of the city. Uh, they weren't actually the primary target of Nebuchadnezzar's army. His desire was actually to get to the other superpower of the day, to get to Egypt and conquer them. And at that time, uh, the, the ruler who was in Jerusalem had been set up by, Pharaoh of, by the Pharaoh of Egypt. So, uh, you know, Israel was just kind of like in the way and on the way to conquer the greater enemy. But once again, they found themselves under the rule of another because there was an invasion and a foreign army was there and the city was besieged and was taken over. Verse 2 says, in fact, that there was a pillaging of the sacred temple. They took out of the treasury of the temple uh, much of the wealth that was there and carried that away and put it in the treasury of the foreign gods. And then what is most upsetting of all, the thing that constitutes, I think, the biggest part of the trouble that would have been so hard for people, verses 3 and 4, we find out that there is this deportation of, of young people, of the brightest and the most beautiful and the best of the land of Israel, of the nobility and of, of the royal family. They were taken away from their parents and taken away from the land and taken to 800 miles away, taken to the land of Babylon to be indoctrinated in their ways. You know, not to mention that's all painful enough, but there would be ongoing foreign occupation. There would be the rule from afar. There would be taxation that was unfair and levies placed on the people. There would be the laws of the Babylonians that would now apply and not just the law of God. And to me, all of that, when you look at it and when you consider what actually is going on, though so difficult for people in this room to really grasp this, this is really trouble. This is a very troubling time. And the question that they would each face in the moment is, how are we going to respond to this trouble? And you and I know this principle already. The big issue is never the trouble that we face, but always our response to the trouble we face. We understand that, don't we? It's never really about the trials that we're going through, but how will we respond to God's work in each of our lives through that trial? And that's the question that's in front of these four and really in front of the entire nation of Israel. How will they respond to the trouble? Because they could legitimately be concerned at this point and be conflicted about what was actually going on around them. But God, God had said in history already, he had called Abraham out, he had given Moses promises, he had given David promises. They were the chosen people of God. They were the ones who, who were the inheritors of everything that belonged to the Lord and they were to share that with the world and the entire world was to be blessed through them. The Messiah was going to come through the nation of Israel. And now they're watching their best be carted away and another foreign ruler rule their land. And they might have been thinking in the moment, it doesn't really seem like God's keeping his promise. It had to have caused them to think this. He had put his own name on them. They were Israel. 
We strive with God, that means. His own name was stamped and imprinted on these very people. And yet Nebuchadnezzar marched in and took over and carried off the best to indoctrinate them in the ways of Babylon. That's what verse 4 says. They were going to be educated. They're being put in a three-year bachelor's program in all things related to Babylon. They were going to, verse 5, eat Babylon's food and drink Babylon's wine. And in a blow that is perhaps most troubling, their own identities would be erased. They would be given new names. Each of their Hebrew names exalted God in some fashion. And now those names would be taken away and they would be given Babylonian names that exalted not the one and only true God, but the false gods of Marduk and Aku and Nabu, the gods of the Babylonians. Their identities are raised in favor of what really is full assimilation of a culture, of an ethnic group, and social engineering of an empire. I think you'd agree with me, all of this had to have rattled their faith in some way. And make them question God just as we do in the midst of our own testings and trials. When trouble comes our way. Why, God? Why? Why is this happening to me? God, did you not say that you love us? How is this proving your love? It does not appear that God is actually a God of love. These are the questions that run through our minds when we go through trouble. God, how, I don't see how this accomplishes your plan. How could going through so much pain accomplish your plan? How could this be a good thing, God? I mean, these are the questions we ask in our troubles. These are the questions they had to be asking at the time. And what you and I often find is that our resolve to live for Christ can melt away in the face of trouble. But what we see as you read the entire book of Daniel is that God's orchestrating in a, an entire plan for the world that you and I can't necessarily see. And certainly we see that when we read the entirety of the scriptures. The exile of Israel was necessary. At the time, it would have seemed so painful and so out of step with what God was trying to accomplish in the world. But as you see the whole thing roll out, it was a necessary event to prepare the nation of Israel for the Messiah to actually come, to prepare, in fact, the entire world for the Messiah to come. So that Jesus Christ could arrive and could give his life on the cross and be resurrected from the dead and inaugurate the church. The exile was necessary for that to take place. So the ultimate can happen, which we still await, the ultimate culmination of history. Gleason Archer says it this way, the divine motive behind all this dreadful humiliation, suffering, and loss was redemptive and altogether in harmony with God's promises. The trouble seems so intense, but it's all moving toward a final end that only God is fully aware of and he is sovereign and this is where we see that theme playing out. God is in control and in the midst of our individual troubles, is it not true that sometimes we look at it and go, it does not seem like God is in control of this. But we have to assure ourselves 
that he is because the exile, listen, the exile was just a single chapter in God's epic story. And I can bring that right down to each of our individual lives and whatever trouble you have gone through or you are going through, listen, listen, it's just one chapter in the epic story that God is writing about your life. It's a tragic and triumphant story. We see both in each of these chapters. And in the midst of the larger meta-narrative of, of what God is affecting in the entire world, the thing that some of us need to hear because we struggle with this is that God actually cares for me personally in the midst of it. That God actually loves me as an individual. You can see that because in verse 6, he names these of all the exiles, of all the ones that were taken out. These four young men, these four teenagers, their names are given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for all history to know. God cared for them as individuals, loved them. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge. And Daniel would consistently make decisions that showed that he knew that he was submissive to God and that God would judge him, not Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah, the Lord shows grace and he showed it over and over again through the book of Daniel and throughout history to his people. Mishael, who is like God, his name proclaims. There is no one like him, and it will be proven time and time again. And Azariah, the Lord helps, and he will, and he does, each one of us. All of those names given to us for all eternity. They faced trouble, but they were not forgotten. He loved and cared about each one of them personally as he does for you and me. So each of us must be resolved. Resolved to live for Christ in the face of all trouble. And then notice, because it doesn't end there, that's not enough. When hard decisions have to be made. Hard decisions that have to be made. Verse 8 kind of takes us there. So they have been um, kind of set up. They've, they've come. Uh, this, is, um, this is like uh, freshman week at, at college and university. They're, they're getting their orientation. Here's where the education building is. Here's where the cafeteria is. Um, and here's the courses you're going to be taking. It's a three-year program. You're going to graduate. And then the king's going to select out from there the ones that he's going to uh, use in the royal court. And so the whole thing is set up. And in the midst of the orientation, verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, I hope that you already know, as a Christian that you're resolved to live for him. If you decide, this is me, I'm resolved, I'm gonna live for Jesus Christ. I hope you understand that's gonna be tested. Do y'all understand that? I mean, if you're looking for an easy life, it's not the Christian life. This is not the easy life. The easy life 
trust me, is coming. Okay? Way easier and blessed and awesome than will happen uh, for those who don't trust Christ. But right now, when you choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are choosing a hard life, one that will be consistently attested. And that's because of where we live. We are not living in the midst of the culminated kingdom of God. We're living in Babylon. That's where we live. In fact, when uh, Cheryl and I first came to town, when we first moved here, and anybody who's been living here for about, you know, I think 12, 15 years or longer, you're going to remember an art piece that was on the south shore of the city. We have a picture of it here. How many people remember uh, seeing this on the south shore? It's by uh, uh, an artist named John McEwen, and he lives up in Hillsdale, but his stuff, uh, done mostly with metalwork, is uh, found all over uh, the country and the world. Like He's, uh, he's a, a well-known artist. Anyways, he had this piece on the Barry Waterfront, for several years, and there were several different pieces. Some of it was actually out in the water, but there was uh, the, the main part of it was the part you see here, which spelled out, each one of them had a letter on it. It spelled out the word Babylon. The artist was inspired by a reggae song called Rivers of Babylon that's actually drawn straight from the scriptures. And, and so he, he made this art piece, and, it, and again, it was there for many years, and you could go to the South Shore, walk along the trail, see uh, the, the cityscape of Barrie and Kempenfell Bay, and then in the foreground, you just had the words Babylon framing all of that. And so when I first came to town, there was this pastor's group, and uh, we were meeting regularly, and there were some pastors in that group who were like really kind of agitated by this Babylon art piece that's on the South Shore because they, they didn't want to believe we lived in Babylon. They wanted to believe we lived in the city of God and that we just needed to speak a blessing over our city and all of that. And so they started lobbying to the city to have ba the Babylon removed, the Rivers of Babylon art piece, have that removed. And they were lobbying the McLaren Art Center to have it removed. And they sent letters on behalf of other pastors. And they, were they went to me just like they went to every other pastor. said, would you sign the letter? What do you think I said? I said, I will not sign your letter. You know me. I wouldn't, I won't, I won't. Maybe it's the way I'm telling the story. But <laughs> not signing your letter. You know why I wouldn't sign the letter? Because we do live in Babylon. It's like the welcome sign on the highway. It's exactly where we live. Now, the thing is, Babylon was a beautiful city. It was very accomplished. It was highly educated. It was a great place to live. There was, there was wonderful prosperity. The only thing about it was they didn't worship God. But in almost every way, it was an awesome place to live, just like the city of Barry is. But at its heart, it wasn't for the Lord. And its culture and its standards and its values were all against the things that these young men live for and that we live for. See, that art piece didn't bother me at all. In fact, I kind of miss it now because I was just happy someone finally recognized it. And it actually played fairly well for us who seek to speak the gospel into a dark place. You see, we live here in a culture whose values are entirely opposed to the word of God. And as a result of that, living in this place, we have to make hard decisions, I'm going to say, on a daily basis. And these four friends, they faced their hard decision very quickly, right there in student orientation, 
facing this culture, the test came around what was being served in the school cafeteria. Now, the reality is most Canadian college and university students go away and don't want to eat in the school cafeteria because the food isn't that good. But in this case, these students were going to a school where they were getting the same food that the king was getting. It was like the cafeteria was serving the food from a five-star restaurant. What student wouldn't want to go to that school if that's the food that was being served? But Daniel was faced and his friends were faced with this dilemma. And in verse 8, Daniel says it. We don't want to eat the king's food. We don't want to drink his wine. And we might ask the question, why exactly was that? What was the basis for Daniel's conviction on this? It could have been, I'll give you a couple of options. It could have been that the food was first sacrificed to idols. And the way that that would play out in temples is people would bring an animal. They would not be whole burnt offerings, but a portion of the animal would be offered. And then uh, the majority of it would be either uh, set aside for the priest or would be sold in the marketplace. And so it's possible that the, and you see an example of this, of course, in Romans 14 in the, in, uh, the New Testament. So it could be that it was just, it was sacrificed to idols and Daniel had a conscience about that. It could be that it was because it was not going to be prepared in the way that uh, it was specified that food would be prepared for Jews in the Old Testament. It could be that it wasn't, just to use the word, it wasn't kosher. But I heard a message by Ravi Zachariah quite a number of years ago at a conference. How many people know Ravi Zacharias? You know, he's a, an apologist and a, an amazing Bible teacher. And I was so stirred by this. I just have never forgotten the talk. And he was speaking specifically on Daniel uh, chapter 1, in fact. And he suggested there was actually nothing wrong at this moment, in this, at this point of time. There was nothing wrong with them actually eating the king's food. It wasn't an issue of idolatry or food preparation or anything uh, like that. But... Zechariah said this, they simply did not want to become accustomed to that food. It was just one way where they could draw what he called a line of resistance, that they wouldn't cross over, that they wouldn't completely fall into the culture and the ways of the Babylonians. They didn't want to become accustomed to it. And I, I got to thinking about that in our case. Where are the lines of resistance? What are the lines that you and I have to draw early in our Christian life and, and redraw them often when they get kind of messed up and we can't find where those lines are again and redraw those lines, those lines of resistance where we just say, I'm a follower of Christ and I can't go over that line. I can't step over that lest I give myself over completely to the culture. In other words, I'm setting out boundaries of what helps me spiritually and what does not. Because we'll be consumed by this world and we will forsake the only God who saves us unless we draw these lines of resistance. In fact, Ravi Zacharias went on to say this, and I thought this was so telling, my appetite is shaped by what I've already taken in. Think about your own appetite. It is shaped, the things you like and don't like, Okay, that's shaped by what you've already eaten. So, for example, it's launch weekend, so we brought in donuts. Okay, so after the service, y'all can have a donut. And, and these are not ordinary donuts. They're Zare's donuts, which are the best donuts in the city of Barrie. Essa Road, Barrie, you got to go there, Zare's, buy a donut. But today you get one for free. 
Now, the reason why, I can't imagine, is there anybody in the room, just raise your hand, is there anybody in the room who's never tasted a donut? Would be in, that, that is a lie. So, <laughs> it would be perfectly un-Canadian of you to have never eaten a donut. The reason why we know that donuts are so good and that we all want one after the service, or maybe even right now, the, the reason why we know that is because we've had one. Our appetite has been shaped by what we've already eaten. Our appetite is also shaped by things that we've eaten that we don't like. For example, kale. <laughs> My appetite is definitely shaped by the one time that I ate kale. And now I know, listen, having eaten that, I don't ever want to eat kale again. And I don't need to. See, my appetite is shaped by what I've already taken in. When I taste something and like it, I want it more. When I taste something and don't like it, I don't want that thing at all. And the principle is, and this has stuck with me for all of these years, and I know it's going to be helpful, and I've said it here before, but listen to this quote from Rabbi Zacharias. Do not taste what you do not want to hunger after. Do not taste what you do not want to hunger after. Draw the lines of resistance and make a determination, a resolve to never cross the line. Set out the boundaries and live there. If you want to be resolved for Christ, then hard decisions actually have to be made about what you're going to consume. And we're not talking about food. I mean, in order to demonstrate that resolve to live for Christ in alone, that's, that's not for him. We have to make these decisions. Daniel and his three friends, they didn't look at their situation and throw their hands in the air and say, this is hopeless or this is impossible, an impossible situation. We just simply have to give in. And in every single way, we have to give ourselves to the culture of the Babylonians. They didn't consider it an impossible situation. The Christian life for sure is hard. While difficult, it's not impossible to live a thoroughly Christian life in a thoroughly unchristian context. But unless you're firmly resolved to do so, the context that you live in will swallow you bit by bit until you have no claim to actually being a Christian. And so we make these moral and ethical choices that set us apart from a world that's hostile to Christ and his word. And what's at stake is the very mission that Jesus Christ has laid on us. For sure, there's a personal benefit in my standing before the Lord, but there's also a mission in front of us. We have to draw these lines because it speaks to our holiness. Gleason Archer said uh, this, in our world today, inconsistent moral behavior on the part of those claiming to follow Christ devalues the Christian faith and causes people to mock it. This is you saying you're a Christian. This is your coworkers knowing you're a Christian, but then you doing things that are inconsistent with that and the mission being completely negated and nullified in your life. No one's going to follow Christ because of you. I'm sorry, that was John C. Lennox, not Gleason Archer. 
In other words, our holiness, how we live, impacts our mission, what we do. And if we want to affect the lives of people around us and have them embrace our faith, that after all is the mission, then our lifestyle choices and our character must align with Christ. To resolve to live for Christ is to choose holiness and mission as a singular focus, a singular way of life. Again, despite the swirl of troubles and ungodliness and even hostility that surrounds us. And Daniel and his friends knew this. And I think we know it too. The hard decisions we have to make are not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of a world that needs someone to stand for Christ so that they can hear the message of life in him. We possess the words of life and we have a world around us that is dying in their sins and lost without him. And we have these words to deliver to them. There's a hard decision that needs to be made. We need to be resolved to live for Christ in this way. And, and so we hold to some unpopular views. We have some beliefs that the world looks at and is angry about and hostile towards, but we have to draw the line of resistance. We have to put the line in the sand. And I want to talk about just one. We hold to the very unpopular view that same-sex relationships are counter to God's design and purposes for human beings. I mean, I think we all understand in this room that there's nothing popular about that, that it sets us at odds with the vast majority of people in the world around us. And yet we are convinced of the truth of this from God's word and from the very nature of design. I will say this, this is a place of love and acceptance, a place of grace. So this is a place that someone who is wrestling with same-sex attraction, for example, can come and be a part of this church and, and, and seek to understand who Jesus Christ is and what he says about living for him. That as anyone comes through the door, no matter what they're dealing with in their life, what they're going to find here are people who are authentic about their own struggles and transparent about what's going on in their own lives and are willing to be vulnerable because no one here thinks they've arrived. No one thinks they have it all worked out. And there better not be a single person who's part of this church family who's ever wagging their finger at another person. Never pointing them out. Because every person in this room needs the same grace from God. Amen? We all need it. We all need it. And so the reason why we draw the line of resistance and don't just completely cave into the culture on the same sex issue is simply this. We stand firm on the word of God, though we are in the vast minority of those who do so, because those who are actually struggling with same-sex attraction, who need to know what that truth actually is, and when the Holy Spirit begins working in their life, they need to find a place with people who are willing to stand and be resolved no matter what it means, no matter what the cost is, no matter the consequences of that decision. So we face consequences because we believe it, but we're providing a safe place for people to come when they discover the truth. 
hard decisions. And then it follows, notice this next, we must be resolved to live for Christ in the face of all trouble when hard decisions have to be made and the potential consequences are severe. They're hard decisions that potentially carry very severe consequences. Let's pick this up in verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch, eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away the food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, notice what's happening here is that verse 9, God gave Daniel favor. The question we had earlier surrounding the trouble was, where is God and, and are his purposes being accomplished? And the answer is, God's right here, giving Daniel favor. He hasn't abandoned him at all. This is a, you understand, Daniel's a teenager at this moment. He's been taken away from his parents and his family. And in this moment, he speaks tremendous wisdom and with great respect. It came from the Lord. The chief eunuch, he's working off a very reasonable assumption when he says that I fear the king and I fear like my head is on the line here, literally. And with incredible wisdom from God, Daniel says in verse 12, why don't you just test us for 10 days? I mean, this isn't like some over-the-top protest like so many students are want to do. This isn't like, oh, we're going to get petitions signed and present it to the administration and, and we're, we're going to make up some placards and we're going to protest in front of the cafeteria. It's not that kind of radical movement. It's so respectful and so filled with wisdom. Just comes up with an idea. Hey, how about we just try this? How about we just go like 10 days? Let's just go a week and a half where we eat this and they eat that. And at the end of 10 days, just compare and tell me what you see. And then in an act of incredible faith, in verse 13, he says, and deal with your servants according to what you see. In other words, I'm going to entrust myself and my friends entirely to the process. And we're going to believe that God really is involved here and that he's going to bring about a result that's awesome. And by the end of it, verses 15 and 16, they were in better shape than the other students. They were no longer required at that point to eat the king's food. Now, the things that you, you can't help but see here, and I'm going to give you two words out of two verses. Verse 8, you can't help but see that, that Daniel is so respectful. He's so respectful. And in verse 12, you can't help but see that he's just using incredible wisdom to come up with this plan. It's respect and wisdom in how these young men approach the conflict that existed between their conscience and their convictions and the culture around them. 
These four young men were not trying to isolate themselves. They, they weren't trying to run from God or from the society, from this anti-God society around them. They were, in fact, trying to find a way to live in that society without compromising their faith. That's how we have to navigate it. Respect and wisdom to find a way to live as the followers of Jesus Christ in Babylon, a culture that's opposed to what we believe. And I think about Jesus in his high priestly prayer, uh, John 17. Just listen to this. Jesus prays this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking Father, Jesus is praying this to the Father about his followers, about us. I do not ask that you take them out of Babylon. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that you take them away from the worldly influences. I'm not asking for a full withdrawal and removal. We'll get that in heaven. But that you keep them in the midst of living in Babylon, that you keep them from the evil one. In fact, it's out of this verse that we get this popular saying that Christians are in the world, but not, not of the world. We're in it. We have to live here, but we have not taken on the world's culture and the world's values for ourselves. We're resolved instead to live for him. And you know, those uh, Christians and so many really on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. You would do well in the way that you respond to certain things that are happening in the social media world. You would do well to look at the way Daniel handled this with respect and with wisdom because there's so much that happens on social media that has nothing to do with respect or wisdom. And the world is watching we need to look at the way Daniel handled this. And if you cannot conduct yourself on social media in a, matter that is, in a manner that is consistent with respect and wisdom, then please do every other Christian a favor and deactivate your accounts. Just get off social media. If you can't be respectful and you can't be wise, then just don't be there. We need to think about this. These are the hard decisions that have to be made and, and understanding the potential severe consequences that will come because we've made these decisions. Respect and wisdom need to characterize us in the public forum. There's a number of you already in this room have had to wrestle with this because you've been invited, for example, to the wedding ceremony of a same-sex couple, do you go or not go? If I go, am I supporting it or not? Or should I stay away and kind of take my stand? Where, where do I draw the line of resistance? And if you haven't faced it yet, you're going to face it soon. And we have to bring respect to the question. We have to bring godly wisdom to the question that we're all going to face around this. For every family gathering that you're invited to where excessive alcohol is going to be served and your family members are going to start acting like idiots. 
And you're wondering about whether you should bring your children into that context and whether they should be exposed to that. You're going to need respect for your loved ones who don't know Christ. And you need to, you're going to need to use wisdom to be able to navigate that situation in a way that honors the Lord. So many different situations that we can come up against here where we need to bring the way of respect for every choice that you make when scrolling through Netflix, for every conversation you have with a coworker about religion. There is a way of wisdom. There is a way of respect. Now, we, we're talking here about the potential consequences being severe, and the word potential was necessary there because in chapter one, everything works out swimmingly for these four young men. The consequences were not severe at all. In fact, just the opposite. Everything turned out great for them. But the consequences, if they hadn't, would have been severe. And the thing we need to remember is that the four young men made this decision before they knew how it was going to turn out. So it was indeed potentially very complicated for them, and the consequences were dire. And that's the risk in being resolved for Christ. Sometimes even with all the wisdom and respect we can muster, the consequences are going to be severe. We're going to have the loss of some relationships. Some of us are going to lose our reputations. Some of us will lose jobs. In some parts of the world, the followers of Jesus Christ, because of their resolve to live for him, are facing imprisonment, loss of freedom, and in some cases, martyrdom in the loss of life. And we must be resolved even when the potential consequences are severe. And we're going to see that more and more. That, that storyline is going to intensify the more we look at Daniel in the coming days. Look at this last. We have to do all of this knowing that God is at work in ways that we cannot see. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, okay, it's graduation. Now they're being brought in before the king. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. They received influence position, status, recognition. The last verse points out the fact that Daniel would minister for the next 70-some years into his 80s. Longevity was given to them. It came to all these young men. And we're going to see that again play out throughout the rest of the narratives in Daniel. And right here at the outset of the long narrative of their lives, these young men made a firm decision. They drew the line of resistance and they said, we're not going any far, farther than this. And that decision made, that determination made at the very outset of their lives, set the tone for the rest of their lives. And that's such a critical thing for us to understand. The first resolve led to many more critical moments where they did not fail to live for Christ. 
because somehow they knew that God was still at work. And I'm going to say this to teenagers that are in the crowd and 20-somethings that are in the crowd that are thinking about how much of the culture and how much of the world they want to experience. And the message is here for you to draw those lines of resistance and make the resolve to not step over it. You don't need to taste everything that the world is offering. You don't need to. And in fact, if you taste it, you will develop an appetite for it. Do not taste what you do not want to hunger after. Now listen to me, if you're in your teens or 20s, this room is filled with people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who wish they had made different decisions when they were in their teens and 20s. Who carry the marks and the scars, who have an appetite for something that they're still fighting, that they wish they had never tasted. God's at work in ways I cannot see. I need to draw those lines of resistance and live for him. We see it plainly throughout the chapter. God's at work in verse 2 when God gave Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. God was at work in verse 9 when he gave Daniel favor and compassion. Daniel didn't realize it. He's just living his life and making decisions. And verse 17 right here, God gave these young men learning and skill and so much more. None of these things are things you can necessarily see at the time. They're just events happening around me and people making decisions and good things happening in my life and bad things happening in my life. And only in hindsight do we see God's hand in it all. And I said off the top that the primary theme running out through the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign. He's in control throughout and all of history has to be understood with that in mind. God is sovereign. So everything that's happening in the world today, God is sovereign. He's in control. And I can narrow that right down to my own life. Every circumstance, everything that's happened to me, all the trouble that's coming my way, all the good things that are happening to me and that God has given to me, all of it is a result of God's sovereignty. And I can frame up everything in the world and I can frame up everything in my own life so much better if I understand that God is in control. That nothing is taking him by surprise. So all of history, understood in this way, everything about my life, and unless it's so, then we threaten to derail our faith whenever some catastrophe hits or something goes sideways in our personal lives. God is in control even when it doesn't seem so to us. God is working in ways I cannot see. And again, as John Lennox says, the meaning of history, the meaning of history lies outside of history. And I'd like to personalize that for us. The meaning of my life lies outside of my life. And it's rooted in the sovereign purposes of God. That's the message. I'm going to show you one more slide here that builds the entire outline together. And I would just like it, if this, if this is your resolve, if you're hearing this and saying, this is me, that's what I want my life to be about, then I'm just going to invite you to read this with me right now as your pledge as we finish up this message. Let's read this together. I must be resolved. Let's pray. Father, again, uh, we're so uh, very grateful for um, the clarity with which you speak to us. 
And we would um, throw ourselves in front of you right now saying that we, we want you. In fact, we need you to work, to do what you always do, to bring about life change. God, we want you to do that here in this church. We, we need you to do it in each of our lives individually and in our marriages and in our families. We need you, Father, to do that life-changing work in the lives of teens and 20-somethings so that they would have the courage and the resolve to draw those lines of resistance and not allow the culture of this world to encroach and to lead them away. Father, we need you to do a work so that those who are among us even today who have not yet given their life to Jesus Christ, that they would find Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternity. Father, save those who are spiritually lost. Only you can do that. God, I, I pray that you would encourage those who again have come here today hurting, weary, beaten down, discouraged. And we can say nice words. We can come alongside and provide a meal, write a card, pray with. But ultimately, Father, you're the encourager. Your Holy Spirit is the comforter, the one who comes alongside us. God, we need you to do that work, to lift spirits. Father, we need you to challenge the rebels in our midst. Some of us have small rebellions that we continue to work on. But Father, there are some in this room, it's a big rebellion. It's a resistance to all things relating to your word. There are some in this room, Father, who have been resistant and hard-hearted and some even angry about what they've heard today. And your Holy Spirit is the only one who can cut through all of that to bring someone to repentance to find life in you. And God, only you can teach the ignorant. And this room is filled with ignorant people who don't know what they need to know. And your Holy Spirit can teach us and bring us to a greater knowledge of who our God is and who we are and how we ought to be serving him. And so God, week by week, I pray that your spirit would be here teaching us and illuminating our hearts to understand these truths. Father, again, it's an invitation for you to do what only you can do. And we will be resolved in this place, these people, each of us individually, resolved to live for you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.